<laughs> of course it's that way, you know, but God has a heart for us and, and he wants to, to get us back into a relationship with him. And that's the second primary theme, relationship. God formed a nation from Abraham and Sarah and through their descendants, the nation of Israel was formed and we're still in that Old Testament component of this story. And that nation was formed that the glory of God might be revealed to the world, that these people might, might express the reality of God uh, to this whole world in so many remarkable and beautiful ways um, and, uh, uh, and that they might know him themselves. Um, I want to start today by asking this question, how is your relationship with God? That's a, that's a really good question, I think, because that's what we're called into as followers of Jesus, relationship. Christ died on the cross so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we might know God um, and have that relationship at, at the heart of who we are. Is your relationship real? Is it personal? Um, is it, is it active and alive? We talked last week about God speaking and us listening, hearing from God. Is it happening? Maybe most of all, can I ask you, is your relationship characterized by love? God for you, you for him. I think if a lot of us got really, really honest with ourselves, that's a, that, like, like a deep love for God and an understanding of God's love. Um, you know, we're there, but maybe not where we quite need to be yet. But that's what we're called into, relationship with God. Now, in the section that we're in the story, uh, it's, it's all about the prophets. And, and in this story, we've created a bit of a subsection. I don't know, don't know if I made that clear enough last week, but, but we're entitling it, God is talking, are we listening? And I, and I hope that this is exactly what's happening to you as we go through the story, God speaking into your life. God impacting you. You hearing from God. No kidding. I kind of prayed that a few minutes ago. It's an amazing thing that people can hear from God and live in that reality. Um, the last two weeks, we've been about the northern kingdom of Israel, the, you know, the people of God. They, it became a divided kingdom. Ten tribes in the north called Israel. Two tribes in the south called Judah. And we've talked about those, those, uh, the, the, that nation and its prophets. There were 19 kings and they were all evil. And before we go forward and talk about the, 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 the Judah story, the nation to the south, we've got to talk about essentially what is the tragic conclusion to the nation of Israel. Did you know that they ceased to be? Let me read to you uh, page 219 in this story. And uh, listen, listen to what happens to this people which was created to display the glory of God. All this, and of course that refers to what precedes it, um, took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. They, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants and prophets. But listen, but they would not listen and were as stiff-necked stiff as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. Wouldn't you love to be characterized as stiff-necked? <laughs> Anybody here stiff-necked? I don't know. Um, 
So the people of Israel will take, were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. And they are still there. The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. I got to tell you about this a little bit and we need to talk about it. See, what happens after 208 years of God speaking and Israel, the northern kingdom, not listening? After 208 years of evil kings, 19 of them in a row who worshipped foreign gods, God raises up the superior power of Assyria. Now, Assyria is north of Israel at this time. Um, it is the overlord, if you would, of, of Syria, the Israelite king. And it's nearly always this way in the story. Pays homage to the king of Assyria or elsewhere pays taxes and so forth to that overlord king. And in this instance, it's Assyria. But God raises up the Assyrian power and conquers Israel in battle. And at the conclusion of that and as a result of that, the Israelite people, the people from the 10 tribes in the north, they are exiled to Assyria. They're carted away. And I want you to listen to this. Those people became fully assimilated into the Assyrian culture, completely. And Israel as a nation ceased to exist. It was gone forever, these 10 tribes. You might have heard of the, the, the title, the lost tribes of Israel. Well, they're the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They're gone. Um, it's a tragic end to a people who were created to know and love and serve God and display his glory to the world. I want to make application of that reality of what happened then to our day to day. It's actually quite easy. Um, because it's possible that the church, the present people of God in Christ, allows the worship of idols within it. It's possible that that happens again. It allows, if you would, the world to penetrate the church and to deeply influence the church rather than the church being faithful and obedient to God, moving out and penetrating the world so that the world sees and encounters the reality of God. When the, when the church allows the world into it instead of the church going into the world to make an impact, uh, the church essentially becomes like the nations which surround it. When we become like the culture which surrounds us, a problem, a significant problem arises in the mind of God and the great potential based on this teaching is that we will disappear. We, the church, can be assimilated into the culture which surrounds us. Here's my point to you today. In many, many places, this is happening right now. Do you know it? Do you see it? It is so obvious that when the Christian church stops believing in its core message, which comes from Scripture, when the Christian church starts to embrace the thinking and the values and the ideas and, yes, the idols of the world, the church is in great danger of disappearing. And it does in some of its expressions. When the church no longer believes that Jesus Christ is the eternal, pre-existent Son of God, born of a virgin in Bethlehem to become the Savior of the world and is the means through which we come to the Father, and we start to embrace the ideas of the world, well, no one religion is any better than the other because we are committed to the principle of equality. Equality is a great good thing, but does that mean that all religions are of equal value? 
Some in the church have come to believe this and to embrace it. Jesus is no longer the savior of the world, a good moral teacher, an example of someone who loved God and gave his life for God. We should all be like Jesus. But the eternal son of God come into the world to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins? No. When the world, no, when the church starts to believe as the world does in terms of morality, when the church gives up its belief in, in, in the morality that the Bible has described and has been believed in the church for 2,000 years and for thousands of years prior into the Old Testament period, when the church starts to look at Scripture and understand it differently because somehow, for some reason, we have been enlightened like no other culture ever has, and we start to accommodate to the culture in terms of moral positions, and we give up the clear and obvious teaching of Scripture, my friends, we are accommodating to a culture and it's possible that we will be assimilated and we will disappear. See, the reality is we will be a distinct people. We will be a different people. We will think differently and we will act differently and we will love differently so that the glory and the love and the truth and the reality of God is spread from us into the world or we will receive what the world tells us to believe and believe it and become like it until we are indistinguishable from it and in that instance, we will go as Israel, the northern kingdom, went. A large study was done a few years ago of thriving churches in southern Ontario by professors from Laurier University and Redeemer uh, College University. And their, their conclusion was this, that churches with, and I'm using these words, they're the ones I like, Churches with a historic orthodox belief in the Bible, in other words, who actually believe what Jesus believed and what the apostles believed and taught and is contained in the pages of the Bible, those churches are thriving. But churches who don't believe the historic orthodox statements of Scripture, those churches are dying. You know, churches are dying all around us. Our presbytery just closed another one last year. Tragically, the witness to Christ in Delhi, at least the Presbyterian one, poof, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Now I want to tell you entire denominations are in numeric freefall. Like it's dramatic how denominations are losing members tens of thousands a year in some instances because they're no longer faithful to the word of God. And I want to tell you, what is predicted is within a few decades, they will no longer exist. IPC, here's our question, and, and it is such an incredibly important question. Do we want to be part of the ongoing upper story of God, or do we want to be assimilated into the culture? We have that choice to make. We get to decide what we believe as we look at Scripture and as we be the people of God. We get to decide if we will trust in the word of God and if we will be faithful to it and faithful to God because of that. We get to decide whether we will embrace the idols of the world or whether we will reject them and live in faithfulness and obedience to God. Now, here's the personal application for you and for me. You know what the church is? Uh, in Greek, it's ecclesia is the word. The church literally is the called out ones. We're called out of the world to be God's people. We're called out of the world to be dramatically different from the rest of the world. You get that? 
Not to be the same as, but to be different too. We become, are intended to become people because of our understanding of Scripture and our belief in Scripture and our, and our obedience to God's Word. We think like God and we act like God and we, and we love like God. But by definition, we're not the same as the world. The Bible says if we love the world and the things of the world, the love of God is not in us. There's a dramatic teaching in the Bible repeatedly about these things. But you know what happens? So many times we want to be like the world. Do you? I think of the high school thing. Some of you are there now. Some of you remember it recently. For some of you, it's a long time ago. But there's a power to be the same as others so that I will be accepted. And sometimes we get into our 20s and it's still at work and 30s and it's still at work and it's 40s and it's still at work. We don't necessarily think in those terms so much, but we look at what the world offers and we go, I want that. I want to be like the culture. I don't want to be different and distinct. Peculiar people, the Bible says in other instances. My friends, the question is, are there idols in our lives that we're worshiping, that 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 the world worships? I've talked about lots of them. I don't think I need to go into that again. Are we living faithfully? Are we living as a distinct people in a world which is turned against God? So there's the question, point number one. Are we willing to be different? Are we, are, we, are we living in obedience to God's word so that we can continue to be part of the, the upper story of God? He will use us, and he will use us powerfully if we will hold on to the distinctiveness based on belief in and obedience to the authority of the word of God. Well, Israel disappears. I, I hope that strikes you profoundly. It just goes. Created to glorify God, but it's gone because it refused to do so and in the end. Um, And we need to now transition our focus from Israel to Judah, the southern kingdom, the small kingdom of of, of two um, tribes of of Israel, which essentially uh, is the nation in which the rest of the story unfolds. Capital is Jerusalem. Uh, Judah has its own problems. Of course it does, but God never gives up on it. It is through this nation that the promises will be fulfilled that God has made for generation after generation after generation. And there are two characters that arise in this story that we're going to look at quickly this morning. The first is one of the five good kings of Judah. I've told you before there were 19. Five of them are good. 14 did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They worship idols. King Hezekiah is one of those good kings. I want to read to you about him. Page 220 in the story. And 2 Kings 18 otherwise. It says there, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. Listen, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles, those things being the idols. The Lord was with them. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. You know, this is an amazing thing that that unfolds. Here is a king who gives himself wholeheartedly to live in obedience and faithfulness before his God. He did what was right in the eyes of God. Five of 14. 
You know, five of 38, if you include Israel and, and, and Judah together, there weren't many, but he is one of them. He is one of these godly individuals who is passionate for the glory of God. <clears throat> and what he does is, is he does rebel against this Assyrian overlord. Um, but because of his faithfulness to God, he cannot be overcome in battle. It's a remarkable thing. Again, let me read to you, page 224. Uh, 2 Kings 19, verse 35. After the battle, if you would. Now, let me describe this to you. Page 224. Here we go. So, you know, ready for battle. The Assyrian king's not happy with this rebellion ups, rebellious upstart in, in Jerusalem. This king who, who, who is fighting back against his authority. And there comes a confrontation. Listen, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. You hear the power of that? This incredibly powerful king who has snuffed out Israel because Israel rebelled and who's ready to snuff out Judah because they have rebelled. <laughs> he, his army is trounced and utterly defeated without Hezekiah or his army lifting a finger to do so. God acted on behalf of this king. God won the victory for them and for him. What's the lesson here? I want to take, I want to take a moment and, and just ask, uh, make this point to you. I'm going to step away. It's like a little aside. But I really want to know, what do you think is the application here? Here's the deal. I want you to know how to read the Bible. I want you to know how to understand the Bible. And I want you to know how to apply the Bible to your life. You, on your own. That's biblical literacy. That's, that's coming to terms with the reality of Scripture and allowing God to speak to you powerfully through it. So listen to me. You don't need a guy like me to stand up in front of you every Sunday to tell you what it says. Have you ever thought about that? That you can figure this out on your own, that you can understand Scripture, apply it to your life, hear the voice of God so that you might live in obedience to Him. There's your challenge this morning. But while we're here, I'll tell you what I think. Number one, the application. There are times <clears throat> we need to take stock of our lives and clean house as Hezekiah did. It was a remarkable thing. He just went, out, went throughout the land and he smashed down all the idols. He destroyed them. Not in my house, he said. Not in my time. Not in my life. And I got a couple of questions for you in this, in this light an application of this man's experience. In all of these sermons that I've spoken to you where idolatry has raised its ugly head time after time after time, it's amazing, isn't it? How much God's condemnation of idolatry is in this whole Old Testament story and how much the people of God continue to worship idols in spite of God saying what he said, in spite of God warning them. They just keep on worshiping these idols from the foreign nations. Here's my question to you. In all of this time that we have spoken about these things now for months, have you torn down an idol in your life? Yes or no? I know it's not easy to tear down an idol. 
I know it's a really hard thing to tear down an idol. And as I've told, to, told you, sometimes we can't do it on our own. Sometimes we need accountability. Have you formed accountability in your life? Or was that just an idea that Chris talked about a couple of months ago, but I've just let drift away? Have you gotten into a small group and got really open about your struggles and heartaches so people are actually praying for you on a daily basis so that you can overcome your idol? Some of you have gotten connected to our healing care ministry where idols crumble. It's powerful what God does. I know it's not easy, and I know we can't do it on our own, but has, has an idol been destroyed in your life, or is this all just talk? See, God is speaking. speaking. Are we listening? Are we transitioning? Are we being transformed into holiness, into the likeness of Jesus? Are we becoming faithful in a way that we never were before? Oh, my friends, do not let the word of God speak. Not listen and not act. It is for us to be freed from that which controls us and which has taken power in our lives and which is keeping us from life in Jesus, true life in him. Number one. Number two, as was the case in Hezekiah's life, is God blessing you because of your obedience and faithfulness? That's kind of an interesting question, huh? I mean, what did God do for this king? He stepped in because Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He had this heart for God like David, his ancestor. And God stepped in when this Assyrian powerhouse came toward him and he wiped them out so that they were free and the king of Assyria went home and left them alone. That's so cool. Is God blessing your life? Let me put it another way. Like Hezekiah, have you put the Lord first above all else in your life? Or is there something that rivals him in terms of importance and significance? Are you doing what is right in his eyes? Another way I could put it is Jesus the revealed son of God now who has come into this world, is he at the center of your life? Does he come first in all things? Is there nothing in your life that he doesn't want? Is there something in your life that you're now doing that you didn't do before? Are you living passionately and wholly for Christ Jesus? So much so that because of your obedience and faithfulness, he's blessing you. You know, a, a lot of times this is what people happen, what happens in people's lives. They come to Christ because they think of what Jesus can give them. Jesus isn't necessarily central and primary. He's not necessarily the one we live for. We're still living for ourselves, but we think we need Jesus because, you know, Jesus can give me forgiveness and Jesus can give me eternal life. And as a matter of fact, I can pray to Jesus and he's going to protect me and my family. And I, I can bring Jesus along in, in the journey that I'm choosing because, you know, Jesus, Jesus can guide me and Jesus can do this and Jesus can do that. But I'm still Lord. I'm still central. I'm still the main player in this relationship. He's kind of tacked on to help me out. I'm not talking about that kind of blessing. It's not even the way the Christian life is to be lived. No, what happens in the Christian life is we come to believe in the Lord Jesus. We come to come to a place where we commit our lives fully to him and we live in obedience to him because he is primary and he is central and we give ourselves and all that we do to, 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 to accomplish his will. We live for him, not for ourselves. And when we do that, it is then that Jesus comes along and he will bless us in the way of his choosing. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus said, and all these things will be added to you, your food and your clothing and all the things that his guys in that day were worried about not being able to get a hold of. The Lord said, don't worry about those things. 
Jesus said to his disciples, listen, if you give yourself first to the kingdom of God, both in your own experience and then building it in this world, and if you give yourself first to the righteousness of God, living a holy, obedient life before the Lord, God will take care of you. You don't have to worry for a moment about that. Remember the next verse goes something like, I don't have that one memorized, but you know, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough worries of its own. Oh, that's it, isn't it, actually, yeah. Like, don't worry about tomorrow. Just stay focused on today. God will take care of tomorrow. Relax. No anxiety in anybody's life. You get a Father in heaven who loves you, and he'll give you everything you need. That's how Jesus wants us to live. But the question is, my friends, is Jesus primary? Is he first in your life, and are you fully committed to him? See, in Hezekiah's life, that was the case. Not Jesus, but Yahweh. And because of that, God acted powerfully in his experience, and Yahweh will act in a powerful way in your life too, if you'll just be fully and wholly committed to Christ. One quick note more about Hezekiah. I think it's such a cool point. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And I want to say this, those of you who are young, I'm thinking people in their 20s, early 30s, late teens, uh, don't wait to make a difference for God. God will use your life in a powerful way if you just give yourself to him. He will use your life to make a difference for him and a difference in this world. Don't wait. Don't wait. And I want to tell you, as Hezekiah chose his steps early in life, so it determined the course of his reign. 29 years, he made a difference for God. Make your choice now and let God use you in a powerful way. So we transition from the disappearance of Israel to King Hezekiah. Now we transition from King Hezekiah to the main prophet who served under King Hezekiah, whose name was Isaiah. You guys have been in a small group, right? Awesome. That's cool. Isaiah. If you want to understand Isaiah, locate him in Hezekiah's reign, and you'll really know what he's talking about. I want to take a, a quick look at two passages uh, from Isaiah and how powerful they can be for us this morning. The first is Isaiah 6, uh, 1 following, page 224 in your books. Anybody bring the story? Yeah? Hey, awesome. Excellent. Good. You're all blessed. You're all blessed. <laughs> I'm glad you are. because If you're like me, I, I read it and I get it as much as, as the hearing and I can make notes. And that's the study of scripture, right? Bring something with you on a Sunday morning and personalize what's being said. Anyway, listen to this. This is the call of Isaiah uh, to, to, to ministry, really. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the, door, the, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. I want to tell you, that's a powerful passage. 
And what I want to do this morning, and, and there's overview in all of this, these sermons and series, but I want you to see the progression that unfolds in this passage. And I want to apply it to your life. First thing that, what, which happens to Isaiah is that he sees God. We're going to project that up on the screens. He actually sees the holiness of God. You know, God, and he sees the power of God too. You know, God is loving and God is compassionate. But I want to tell you, my friends, this man saw the reality of God enthroned and he saw power and he saw holiness, purity, sinlessness in his God. That led him to see himself very differently. Step number two, he comes to a place where he saw his desperate need. He goes, I am ruined. <laughs> Another translation says, I'm undone. I'm falling apart. <laughs> I mean, he, he felt like he was in the most desperate place that a human being can be. He recognized that as he stood in the presence of holiness, there was something wrong. And then he comes to a place where he confesses his sin. I wish he could conquer his sin, but that's not possible for us. He confesses his sin. You know, he has this experience where the angel takes the coal and touches his lips, and he then is forgiven. He has that moment of forgiveness in his life where God takes away his guilt in a powerful, remarkable experience. And then that is followed by an absolute commitment of his life to the things of God. He says, here I am, send me. You got it? Hopefully in a minute we'll have the whole thing, but he sees the holiness of God. He sees his desperate need. He confesses his sin. He is forgiven for his sin, and then he fully commits himself to the Lord. Where are you in that progression? Where are you in that progression? This is such an important question for me to ask you and such a, 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 a gripping thing for us to take seriously. I want to say this. Each step requires the previous step to make it happen. Of course, not the first, but, you know, for him to see his desperate need, he only sees it in the light of the holiness of God. Have you ever done that? Has, has God, by his spirit, ever opened your eyes to see who he really is so that you go, oh, my goodness, I'm not looking good. See, if I compare myself to people out in the world, I can look pretty, I'm pretty impressive, huh? You know, I don't do this and I don't do that. If I compare myself to some of you, <laughs> I'm looking pretty good. <laughs> some of you, I'm not looking so good. But if I compare myself to God, oh boy. When I, when I place myself in the presence of the holiness and the power of the living God, I don't look good. Because all of a sudden, I become pretty aware of my sin and my desperate need, and it leads me to confession. It leads me to my knees where I say, Lord, I'm sorry, and I know I'm not living before you the way I ought, and I know you are holy and pure and you're powerful, and I pray that you will forgive me for what you are now making me aware of. If you don't have an understanding of that holiness of God, you're probably never going to get to desperate need and sincere and deep confession in life. Have you seen God as God is? Have you been led to that point of seeing desperate need? Have you then been led to that place, I mean, driven to that place of confession as a result, or is it, oh, God, forgive me for my sins, God, I did this and that, and I need to go to sleep now, good night. Ah, oh, that's not what we're talking about here. And through his confession of sin then comes this forgiveness. God took away his guilt. You live through this. You know what happens? Your guilt is gone. 
it is gone forever, gone. And, and as you stand in the presence of this Holy One, that God will never see guilt in you again. He sees the righteousness of Jesus who died in your place, who took your sin upon himself on the cross so that you can be guiltless in the eyes of the Father. And so you don't need to be afraid anymore. <laughs> I want to tell you, when people get to that place of receiving forgiveness in this life-changing, life-transforming reality, there's only one response to it. And it's an absolute commitment of ourselves to God, to Christ. Where are you in the progression? And I want you to take this progression from here today, and I want you to go to God, and I want you to help, ask him to help you figure it out and to take you to the next step. Because you know what I think? You know what the Bible teaches? You know what Isaiah's example here, the teaching of the holy word of God, tells us this is the way into relationship with God. See, this takes us way, way, way beyond, you know, thinking that Christianity is all, all about assent to doctrinal truth. Now, I think doctrinal truth is really important. I spent a lot of my years studying stuff. I think it's really important that we know it. But ascending to doctrinal truth does not accomplish this in your life. And I think religious practice is important. I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad you go to your life groups. And I'm glad you read your Bible. You know, all those things that good Christians are supposed to do, it's all good. But that doesn't bring you to this place. It is through in our encounter with God and our recognition of our need and our confession of sin and our being given sin so that we are guiltless before the Lord and being brought to this place of absolute commitment that we come to a place in our lives where we are stepping into the upper story of God. We are stepping into relationship with God. We're stepping into that life which God calls us to. And I'm here today to ask you, are you there yet? I think about the last one. Well, you know, I can have all this forgiveness stuff, but absolute commitment to the Lord with my life? Put him absolutely first in all that I do? Mm, Chris, wait a minute. That's heavy duty, you know. I could end up an, a missionary in Zimbabwe or something if you get me to do that. <laughs> I don't care what God calls you to do. I just know that what it means to follow Jesus as Savior and as Lord is that we absolutely commit our lives to him, completely putting Christ first with nothing else coming before his will for you. Are you there? You know, the way we define Christianity is an interesting thing in our culture. You know, I go to church, I'm a Christian. You know, my great-grandfather was a minister, therefore I'm a Christian. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Are you there? That's our way into relationship with Jesus. That's our way into being a child of God. Will we participate in the upper story? And God uses us and God blesses us and we encounter him in a powerful, life-changing way. Last passage I want us to look at is Isaiah 53. Great passage. Um, and here the story takes a very intentional turn. Have you been waiting for it? <laughs> it's like all about, you know, all the prophets and all the kings and all the way from Abraham, all the way up to David. Where's Jesus? Well... Here the story takes a very definite turn toward Christ himself. It's exciting and it's powerful when you recognize it. Isaiah 53, 1 to 6, is page 228 in your, in your story version. 
Isaiah writing, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was a poor preacher. He's a normal guy. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one uh, from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Let me rephrase. We're all stiff-necked Israelites, right? And, And Judites. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My friends, I want to tell you that that, when it was written and preached, was an explosion of revelation and of truth and of hope. Here is the heart of the plan of God. This coming, the coming of one who would be the savior of the world, who would save us from our sin and our sinful nature, who would save us from our unrelenting resistance to God and his will, who would be the solution to our spiritual blindness and to the suffering that sin brings into our lives and the disruptive and destructive power of sin and evil and the very devil himself. Here is the one who would be the solution to our separation for God from God. But because of him and his death on the cross, our sin would be placed on Christ. Our guilt would be taken to himself in those moments of suffering, those hours of agony in which he experienced his, our hell so that we would not have to. And all of this for people who would believe in Jesus that he willingly gave his life for our transgressions, for our iniquities, for those who would simply believe that by his wounds we are healed. That's powerful stuff, huh? That's the gospel. That's the good news. One is coming, Isaiah says, and he's going to fix it all because we can't do it ourselves. We can't figure this out. You know, there are two kinds of people in the world. I don't mean to be overly absolute, but I, I think this is true. There are people who believe in Christ. There are people who have seen the holiness and the power of God and have become incredibly aware of their need and have confessed their sin before God and have been forgiven their sin and their guilt has been taken away and they have yielded their lives fully and completely to Jesus to serve him in his cause. And there are those who have not. And what we're posed with today is the very simple question as we wind down here is uh, very simply, which are you? Which are you? You know, my hope today is that as I've been speaking, God has been at work. 
God is speaking, are we listening? It has been my prayer and it is my hope that as I have been speaking to you, the Spirit of God has been saying to you, now's the time. I want you to come to me. I'm showing you my holiness. I'm helping you realize your dire circumstance. I'm making you aware of your sin that you might confess it to me. (laughs) I've come. I I have brought you to this place so that you might have your guilt taken away and so that you might ultimately commit your life to me. So here's the deal. We're going to close our eyes in a minute. We're going to have a moment of quiet prayer for you to do with God what God is calling you to do. For you to have your Isaiah moment, if you would, with him. It could be that some of you have never seen the glory of God, the power of God, the holiness of God till today, and have never been really aware of your need for forgiveness, and now you're saying, okay, God, I get it, and I'm ready to confess, and I'm going to do it with all of my heart. It could be that, you know, you've seen the glory of God, the power of God, the holiness of God, and you've confessed your sin previously, and you've received forgiveness, but you've never fully and completely yielded your life to Jesus Christ. Here's your opportunity. I don't know where you are in that progression. What I do know is if you're not at the bottom and if you haven't really entered in fully into relationship with Jesus the way God calls us to, that you'll take your step today, whatever step is needed to move you forward in the progression. So we're going to pray. We're going to be quiet in God's presence for a few minutes. I'll tee it up with a quick prayer. I'll leave it to you to deal with God as God's spirit leads you. And I want to tell you, he's here today. He's here to reveal himself and his truth. He's here to welcome you, to invite you into relationship as is described in Isaiah. He is here that you might know the presence and the power and the beauty and the blessing of God for your life. Let's pray. Lord, Isaiah had an incredible moment at the beginning of his ministry, which would change the rest of his life. And for each of us who enter into relationship with you, we have those moments. And Lord, everyone here, I hope and I pray, knows what the next step is. And Lord, we come now in silence before you that people might take that next step. Lord, where people need their eyes opened, I pray that you'll open their eyes to see who you really are. That they might compare themselves to you, not to anyone else. For people who need to see and understand, God, the dire circumstance they're in and their need for forgiveness, give it to them. For people who are ready to confess and receive forgiveness, give them that grace. For people, Lord, who believe in you but have never yielded their lives fully to you, give them the courage and the faith to take that step, we pray. Hear us now, O God, as we, your people, pray to you.
Father, the remarkable truth is that we even have the possibility of doing what your word suggests today because Jesus came, your son, the eternal son of God, into this world and ultimately died on a cross, shed his precious blood that we might be saved, that we might do, that we might have the privilege of doing what has just been taught to us in Scripture, that we might enter into a relationship with you, that we might get caught up in the God story, <laughs> that we might live our lives for you. Thank you, Father, for Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for the work of your spirit that brings this truth and applies it to our lives so that we see and believe and confess and commit. God set this church on fire. As you lead us to destroy the idols of our lives, as you lead us to live righteously before you, as you lead us to live our lives fully for Jesus because of what he's done for us. This we pray in Jesus' name.